When we understand the world of today, we can see that genocide and population control are in use as they've always been, even though the forms and exact methods have changed. In order to understand what's happening now, we need to understand what has happened before. And Ireland is a good example of a country which has experienced these things, not only in recent times, but in the past. Any genuine Irish person is aware of Ireland's occupation by the British Empire and of some of the things that happened here. Certain things, such as the executions of rebels and events like Bloody Sunday, are well known. But other things are not so well known, and some have been hidden. To use an old adage, history is written by the victors. And when it comes to Ireland, who has written its history? And have the perpetrators covered their tracks? In this interview, I speak to author Chris Fogarty about his work researching Ireland's Holocaust, more commonly known as the Great Famine in the mid-1800s. Chris's book, called Ireland 1845-1850, The Perfect Holocaust and Who Kept It Perfect, is available via the link in the description. Chris Fogarty, good to speak to you and thanks for being on the program today. Thank you so much for this time, Emmett. No worries. Great, great, yeah, great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this one for sure. And um, you know, today's show, of course, we're going to be examining the uh, the subject of the Irish Holocaust, usually referred to as the the Great Famine, quote unquote, or the Great Hunger of the mid eighteen hundreds. And so, to start us off here, uh, tell us, Chris, how and when you first started to look into this subject. In 1946, when we first went to Ireland, I learned about uh, uh, the people who had been evicted and, and went across the river into the bog, uh, referred to as Connolly's Gardenines. But I filed that away and didn't think about it. My mother used to speak about them with great empathy. Her voice would drop to a lower level when she would mention Connolly's Gardenines. One man who used to go by our house, uh, my grandfather's house, in a in an iron-tired cart with a stab, dappled gray was said to have been left outside on a dung heap when they were evicting and pulling down his parents' house in the land wars of the 1880s. But that was a continuation of the evictions of the of the Irish Holocaust. So it was, however, much, much later. I had just finished a job in El Salvador, a hydroelectric project, and decided to do my grandfather's, my paternal grandfather's biography. I had completed my mother's side. Mm-hmm. And, and he was a British soldier. Uh, he was a survivor of the Holocaust. I never called it a Holocaust at the time, by the way. I called it famine, like everybody else. But he, in 1857, when he was 18 years of age, he walked to, to Abbey Leash in Port Leash and joined the British Army. While researching his life through his, through his own records in his uh, 40th of foot regimental records, I found that his regiment, when he was a, a boy of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years of age, had removed the food from South County Galway. I was shocked because I had always known or was certain that it was a, uh, a famine having something to do with the, with the blight of the potato crop. Mm-hmm. So I researched further and I found that more than half the British army were in Ireland in those years, 1845 through 1850. Wow. More than half. That is one, that is 67 regiments of the entire British army of, at the time, 130 regiments. So very slightly over one half of the total army were in Ireland in those years. And their sole function 
was removing Ireland's abundant food crops to the ports for export. Wow, must have been a hell of a shock to find that out first time. Uh, It was. In fact, it's a strange thing. When some of your fundamental beliefs uh, get completely demolished, a a rejiggering of, I suppose, tens of millions of synapses in the the brain have to be rejiggered. Mm -hmm. And it, it provides, it causes a sort of a headache. And that went on for quite a few months. In fact, since then, after the rejiggering ended of this whole pyramid of cause and effect relationships that we believe in, um, it's been sort of, uh, I must say, it has sort of blighted my life a little bit like the Palestinian situation today. Uh, It is not entirely the murder of approximately 5.2 million Irish people that causes my wife and me to grieve. It is the slander that followed that, that genocide, that murder. Mm-hmm. And we were taught that the idea that they relied upon one crop or grew only one crop, uh, a, a crop that, that had a tendency to fail, suggests that they fell into a trap, a lethal trap of their own making. That, that is shocking. That is shocking. Yeah, it, it's straight away your instinct tells you something about this kind of stinks, you know, very agricultural sort of country. And all of a sudden one crop causes all that. And, you know, you... you of course, you, you just touched on it there. There was like an official narrative uh, about what happened, which probably clashed with, you know, your, your newly discovered knowledge of, of what really happened. So what does the official narrative say about that famine period, you know, just to put that on the table? Uh, yes, that a, a, the potato crop failed on which the Irish people relied and grew far too much of. And when that crop failed, they starved and the British government didn't do enough to help the needy Irish. And the, the Irish are, are referred to as rather permanently needy. The people, the, the people of Ireland are permanently needy, according to the official narrative. Mm-hmm. And you brought up as well on, on, the, on the, the website as well about the, um, the potato blight itself, Phytophthora uh, infestans. Um, yes, it was definitely a real thing. It was present, but th- that that didn't cause famine as such. Yes, as I mentioned to people at the time, it'll be rather like in Chicago if pizza pie were to di- were to disappear, <laughs> we all wouldn't die of starvation. Yeah, yeah, that was just one crop. And what's more, um, one of the proofs, uh, my book is is comprehensive. It it is definitive. It it. There's no possible, it demolishes all previous books ever written on that subject, especially Christine Keneally's and all of the recent ones in particular. The more recent books that have been written since, since the children of the Holocaust survivors have passed away, the lies have become more blatant. And, that, and that's what we are faced with. In academia, in Irish academia, there is no place for, for a truth teller about the starvation of Ireland. The official Ireland does not want to know about the food removal and the British Army. In fact, they don't want to know about the British Army's role in those years at all. That's, that's absolutely must be covered up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no surprise there. We can definitely get into that as well. And, um, you know, it's shocking stuff, really, something of this magnitude. And, I mean, to look at the numbers here as well... Um, you know, we're talking about a time period of roughly like 1844 to 1855, wouldn't it be? And um, 
like what was the the estimated population you know before this period well there would have been a population of approximately 13 12.8 13 million people in ireland uh, in uh, in 1845 sorry in 1850 uh, absent the crime but all of all of academia all of the writers depend upon sir william wilde's census work hmm. and queen victoria awarded him a, a knight knighted him for his work she knighted him i think it was in, in 1866 he was a key figure in the 1841 census he was the commissioner of the 1851 census and i think also the 1861 but she she knighted him for his great work on the census so his census work in which he it was it was quintuple the size of the 1841 census because he went to unbelievable lengths to conceal events he went back as far as as uh, eclipses uh, lunar and and solar eclipses of a thousand years earlier in order to give false attribution as to why so many people died he fabricated the names of diseases that have never been known uh, the king's the king's cholera and the and the murren and the barking the barking mania all of these diseases there are a great many of them that he he fabricates takes them right out of his imagination and to them he attributes th- this huge number of deaths the numbers of which however he conceals. He counted deaths only of people who died individually out of a family. If the entire family died, they were not counted. And so that, that goes out. So all of the people today who officially write about the so-called famine, they all rely upon William Wilde's work. By the way, he was the father of, of uh, Oscar Wilde and the wife of that brilliant woman, Speranza. Mm-hmm. Uh, while his wife, and they they live their lives in mutual official um, public opposition to each other. She wrote the book The Starvation Years, which which cited the the, the fact of the British Army removing the food or pre- so-called protecting the food from the hands of of those who grew it, and uh, while he. Uh, the, the husband denied everything. He was an empire supporter, and he is the source of 100% of the misinformation about census figures from that time. He was in charge of that, and he was knighted for it. He also, by obscuring and trivializing the, the fact that it was a genocide, uh, he evidently, when Queen Victoria conferred an order of the bath upon the commander-in-chief of that Holocaust, that was General Sir Edward Blakeney. He was a commander-in-chief of all 67 regiments while they removed the food from Ireland. As they approached near the end of that mission of the starvation of Ireland, Queen Victoria conferred upon uh, General Sir Edward Blakeney an order of the bath. I understand that's one of the the most prestigious awards given by the criminals to each other in Britain has been for a long time. Yeah, so if you go along with it, you get a reward. Yes. And so uh, General Sir Edward Blakeney's uncle had been England's, and I say England, I think advisedly, because Britain didn't have a whole lot to do with these crimes. 
they were English crimes more than anything else. The people of Wales and Scotland had little to do with the, with the crimes of empire, except to serve as soldiers like my grandfather. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, where was I now? So, the, by the way, the brother who taught us all in school in Castlereagh, County Roscommon, was later asked in retirement, a brother, what you now call it uh, genocide, seeing that you do, why did you teach us all famine in school? And that wonderful man, otherwise a beautifully conscientious, very hardworking teacher, replied, I must say very unacceptably, he said, regarding his teaching of the falsehood of famine, I had no choice. I had to teach the curriculum as provided to me by the government. Wow. So there was a, a man dedicated to, to good, and I must say he did his very best to make us better people. But he taught for generation, no, for school generations, for decades in Castle County was common, and he taught a lie, and evidently it's it's not just an ordinary lie; it was a lie to conceal a genocide. So, so I don't know for certain whether he knew it at the time. I fear he did, and I fear that a great many teachers in Ireland, who to this day, and professors in the National University of Ireland including in Limerick, hmm. are still teaching, still teaching potatoes and blight. And, and, and in fact, that is the scenario that says the Irish people are, we don't want to say it, but the Irish people are stupid. They, they fell into a lethal trap of their own making. The only people on earth who ever essentially committed national suicide by growing a failure and rely, relying upon a failure-prone crop. Doesn't add up. You know, and the the, the official um, story. Once you start to kind of poke at it, you can find the holes quite easily. And I mean, who who um who did this affect then? Did, did this kind of affect absolutely everybody in Ireland except perhaps like the you know the landlords and and the army and um and those at the top kind of? That's my take. According to Samuel Samuel Lewis's book, Topography a topographical dictionary of Ireland. Uh, He did a lengthy tour of Ireland in the 1830s. And so far as he was concerned, there was nobody in Ireland except English landlords. He didn't say they were English. He referred to them as Irish. But uh, they were all English. And what's more, they were in the process of wiping out what had been uh, Irish towns. Uh, the town of Castlereagh, for example, he, he, he describes as growing up around the gates of the estate of Sir uh, Wills Sanford. Sir Will, Wills Sanford got his uh, sir, his, his, his sir from having sold out the Irish in the, in the surrender to Britain or to England of 1800, became a matter of law, the, it became a part of Britain officially on January 1, I think it was 1801. Mm-hmm. But many of those landlords uh, sold their votes for many thousands of pounds, but also for titles. So the, the title of, of, uh, of the Will Sanford, Henry Will Sanford, his title came from having sold out to the, the union, the, the, the combining of Ireland into Britain. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, there had been a government of Ireland uh, for which the Irish were not permitted to vote. All of Ireland's officials 
in the parliament in Dublin were Protestant, and only Protestants were allowed to vote. So that was a self-perpetuating perpetuating situation. Uh, hard to believe that such a thing ever happened, ever at any stage, but that was Ireland for centuries, that the Irish were not permitted to vote in their own country. Yeah, and, and the Protestant ascend, ascendancy and all of that, they would be allied to the crown. So we have this big structure here, this big machinery that's being ruled by the, the British monarch. And, you know, looking at the actual apparatus in Ireland and how this was organised, Chris, I mean, th- this wasn't in a localised area, was it? This was countrywide. Yes, it was entirely. For centuries, the, the Irish were the common enemy and they had been stripped of legal personhood around the time of Elizabeth I. And so being stripped of legal personhood also, of course, obviously stripped you of all of your property. You could not sue anyone. You could not defend yourself in any court. The justice system in Ireland for centuries did not recognize the people of Ireland as, having any, as, as being human beings. The law applied to persons and Irish personhood had been removed from all Catholics, all native Irish. That's that's what they faced for centuries. Wow. And I wish I could say that Rome had come to their assistance, but it didn't. Rome sided with the British English government in Ireland for all of those years. So there was no one to protect the people here then. Uh, like they were just kind of getting it from all sides. And... Um, you know, looking at the at how it was actually done, how it was physically done, I, I know the the army was involved and, and the landlords would have been involved. Was there anyone else involved in this equation or was it just like the landlords would just kind of, you know, whistle and call the army in when they weren't uh, getting their way? Well, they, they could do and they did do that. However, the army were not the first uh, attackers, the first force removing the food. The first force were the royal constabulary. Sorry, they weren't royal yet. They became royal in the 1860s. So the Irish Irish constabulary, run by officers from England, as they headed, led by officers from England, were the first force to be used to remove the food. When they ran into difficulty, usually the landlord's militias were brought to bear. And and there was a, there were many, many more uh, much, much more of an English presence in Ireland in those years. The landlords had their own support system. They had their their foremen and their lawyers and their doctors and their saddle makers and their advisors of all kinds. And so so much so that the map of Ireland is dotted with the churches of their followers. The landlords were essentially all Church of England, but Many of their followers were Presbyterians and Methodists. And so the 1830 to 1845 map of Ireland, the, the Ordnance Survey of Ireland from 1830, 1845, it took that long to survey the whole thing and, and, and publish it. Um, they show that there are Methodist and Presbyterian churches all over Ireland, not, not everywhere, but they're scattered throughout the country. They were the, the churches of many of the, of, the, of the support system for the English landlords. Uh, it's important to mention here that the English landlords all left they were bought out by the British government between 1900 and 1910 and continuing until 1920. But they were bought out compulsorily, but 
at prices that were far above the market. Hmm. And they all returned to England. In fact, the evictor of my great-grandparents in 1836 has another estate in England, in Cheshire, on which he still lives, thousands of acres. Wow. He owned, uh, he owned Castle Duro, which became the town of Duro, County Leash. And he evicted my great-grandparents from their townland farm of Ballykeely, Duro, County Leash, in 1836. Uh, they wandered away from their land, and the only place my great-grandparents were felt that they were had some measure of safety was in sort of a no-man's land beside the landlord's gallows on Gallows Hill, uphill of the landlord's gates in Duro. It was called Castle Duro. And there they lived. One child was born. My father, my grandfather was born in the shadow of that gallows. And a year later, they moved down the hill and onto Chapel Street into safety. I would think that they were allowed to build an emergency shelter there beside the gallows in case they should protest against their evicted status and be handy, just be handy to string up. Uh, the, the English landlords in Ireland, many of them had their own gallows, which they would uh, have the army uh, use for them. They could name anyone they want. They could hang anyone they wanted. So that was the reality at the time. Uh, none of my grand aunts and uncles or my grandfather died during the, that, the Holocaust. But my grand aunt uh, did, uh, when my grandfather joined the British army to try to keep his siblings alive, and I suppose his parents, uh, his sister years later, on her way to pick up his paycheck from the post office in Duro County Leash, collapsed and died. And so there was one victim of hunger, but it was not, it's just like my, my family were not evicted during the Holocaust, they were evicted in 1836. Uh, my granddad died of malnutrition or a disease caused by malnutrition after the, after the Holocaust. So that's my family's uh, position in it. I just happened to be doing my grandfather's biography when I learned the beginnings of all this. Uh, it was quite a shock. So there's multiple layers, uh, like they, they had a whole system in place here where, you know, if you show a certain amount of resistance, there's, there's a response to that. And if you try to go harder with the resistance and do something about it, there's other levels that come in. And I mean, was it the same up in Ulster, Chris, you know, because of the, the like the Protestant plantations and all of that, they weren't everywhere in the country. And I mean... Was the British um, the spread of British troops different up there, or was it the the same as in the Republic? No, you'll see on my map in my book uh, and any any map I've ever made. The according to the to the War Office records, they're the ones I use the W O records in what was then the Public Record Office. Now it's the National Archives. It's called the same place. It's called the National Archives now, in Kew, west of London, uh, is where the the, the national records are kept. And that's where, if anyone doubts what I what I have put into my book, they can get the same material themselves by going to the WO records, War Office records in Kew in London, look for the ones that apply to Ireland, and they can find the records, of which I have copies, by the way, 
uh, two copies here in Chicago that I paid for and got while I was, we made, my wife and I made it quite a few trips there to Kew because the first trip, I spent nearly a week there and it only, I, it only created many, many more questions. I went to the second time either myself or with my wife and got a whole lot more answers and that raised more questions. So I made either three or four trips to London to get their records. And I would ask anyone who wants to know the truth about those years, that event in Ireland, to pay absolutely no attention to what you were taught in school or to what is taught to your children or grandchildren in school today. None of them are being taught the truth. The, the, the official record contradicts what is being taught in Irish schools. And I must say, in DePaul University and Loyola University in Chicago today. The United States used to be a force for, for general courage and, and the, the truth in Ireland, but the reverse is now happening. Um, the corruption of Ireland's academia has now spread to Chicago and I think the nation. There are, as we speak, there are people touring the United States trying to drive home the lie of potato famine. The Irish government is involved in that. They are, they are, they are sent here by the Irish government and by the so-called Northern Ireland government. Both yeah, sides. Both sides, wow. And it, that's part of the, my work in general, Chris, with this brand resolving reality talks about, you know, the bigger picture and, and the bigger picture um, agendas that are being played in the Western world. And for sure, you know, destroying culture and history seems to be a massive part of this as well. The, they don't want people to know the truth. They want people to believe in this kind of um, watered down or censored version of the truth. And, and that's what they're pumping out through academia. Yes, uh, there's a great Irishman who has actually abandoned his own country. He's a, he has alienated himself by, caused by the alienation, the, the hatred of the official Ireland to him. He's, a, he's a Dr. Tomás Maxiomon, uh, who is now living in Catalonia, in Spain, among people who he says have some respect for their own history. And he has written a book entitled The Broken Harp. And it, it's sort of a, a takeoff on the harp that went through Tara's Halls, the soul of music fled, that it's no longer operating, it's broken. Hmm. And he has a PhD uh, in biology from Cornell University in the state of New York. That, that university and other biologists have run examinations of tests on uh, mice and rats uh, where they combine an odor and an electric shock simultaneously, and then they remove the the shock, and when the odor goes into the cage, the mat, the, the rats or mice react in this as if they're getting shocked. So he goes on further to point out the next generation of those test animals, the next generation of them, even though they've never been shocked with electricity, that they react the same way to the odor. From those tests, he contends that there, there becomes a genetic component to the results of trauma and that he refers to the Irish in Ireland as super colonized Irish syndrome. Or he refers to, the, to their condition, their syndrome, as super colonized Irish syndrome. Um, and he contends that the Irish are the most traumatized according to their behavior, that they are doing more work to wipe out the remains of Ireland 
than the British used to do, that they're more assiduous in wiping out what used to be Irish culture, what remains of Irish culture, than the British when they were here. Yeah, uh, he, he's a, he's a man who should who should he in most countries. If if Ireland were free, Thomas McShiamon would be a cultural leader of of Ireland. But of course, he's instead of that, he's an exile. Wow, that's really profound because. You know, I've been saying that for a while that, you know, in my work, again, like I was saying, I talk a lot about things like control and globalism and the European Union and all these different things that are facets of control. And Ireland has never been free, you know. Um, but when people say to me, how is it that Irish people aren't passionate about sovereignty and freedom? As in, They're not as passionate as they should be. And I, and I always respond, well, it's because Ireland been, has been kind of progressively ground down over the centuries, and what you're saying corroborates that, that when you have this trauma spread out over such a long time, it becomes actually part of the actual DNA. That seems to be the case. I had heard of epigenetics and read of it, but uh, was quite skeptical about it until reading uh, McShiamon's book, The Broken Harp. And I, I did a review of it. In fact, I bought quite a few copies and gave them to friends. Uh, the Broken Harp. It's on Amazon, at least Amazon USA, at least. And I reviewed it. Uh, it is very, very impressive. And he should be he should be operating in Dublin uh, and he should be a columnist and a TV uh, uh, spokesperson in an official Ireland where Ireland to become free. He would have that position in Ireland, along with quite a few others, I would think. I'm looking at then, Chris, you know, documentary evidence and stuff that that kind of backs up what you're saying. Um, Does that list of Holocaust reports in the Cork Examiner, it was 1845 to 1855. Tell us about this one. Yes. Well, at the time, many writers were referring to it as Holocaust. I was neutral on the subject, agnostic, didn't know, but I did recognize that it needed a single word label. I happen to know Professor Norman Norman Finkelstein, who taught at DePaul University in Chicago. Oh well, yeah, I know, I know, I know the man. Yep. Okay, and we we took him around a few places to speak, my wife and I, and we're we're admirers of him for it, for being a truth teller, a son of Auschwitz survivors, and he, he was fired by Catholic University by by DePaul University, a Catholic university in Chicago, because he was telling the truth about Palestine. Uh, that shocked us. We participated in the protest there for a few days, but that's that's uh, what's going on. And it it turns out that there's a, a much larger picture. We could not understand why the amount of work my wife and I did, why that must have offended people in power. There was a series of crimes perpetrated against us by the Irish government, with the connivance of. Then say with the U.S. government, with the connivance of the Irish government, the FBI here in Chicago framed me for the murder of three people I'd never heard of. While they covered for the murderer, the murderer was 16-year-old David Biro, whose murder weapon belonged to FBI agent Lewis. These are all facts. At the time, the penalty f- for a mass murder for a person my age would be would be lethal injection. So I was facing death. But the murderer blabbed, saved me by blabbing through his FBI cover. He's now serving life without possibility of parole. Two days before he was convicted in a, in, in a court in federal court in, in a court in Chicago, 
FBI came bursting through our door with drawn guns, locked us up, my wife and I, in the federal jail in downtown Chicago and tried to imprison us for the rest of our lives. It took us 15 months and a fortune, but we proved that the only evidence against us, an FBI audio tape, was a criminal fabrication. We walked, but so did the criminals. And the Pacific FBI agent who had framed me for the triple murder and who had locked my wife and me up on this other set of absolutely false fabricated charges, he was later sent over by the FBI to work with MI5 in helping to arrange an own goal by the IRA in OMA. So we wondered, now we didn't know that he was involved. For, we couldn't understand if we were doing work for the McBride principles here in Chicago, and we also did a lot of work to free Joe Doherty, an ex-IRA man who had been locked up without, without a, a charge or trial for years, eight years in a federal lockup without having been tried, just like, like English justice. So it was either that or it was my book. Either one of those, one of those things must have been the reason that they committed all these crimes against us. But it turns out that that was only a part of it. At the time, the neocons, the largely Israeli-American and Israeli-British neocons, were planning the, their, their world conquest. In their own paper, which they wrote about 18, uh, 1989, is a project for a new American century in which they call for uh, full-spectrum dominance, which is, in fact, the conquest of planet Earth and space. So their next step on the threshold to their ultimate targets, Russia and China, which are being demonized as we speak, they had to take out the threshold nations and wherever there was oil. So they couldn't do it without the, quote, international community, unquote, a role that the British military could fill. But they were being tied down by the IRA in the six counties. Mm. So the MI5 and the FBI worked together to defeat the IRA and a combination of the Good Friday Agreement, which was based upon a falsehood, and the OMA bombing, particularly the OMA bombing, defeated the IRA. That freed up the British Army and the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, etc. went ahead. Yeah, so you, you think, well, you obviously kind of made some people worried with the things you were uh, involved with, and that's probably why they were trying to um, to kind of to set you up. And um Speaking of how you're, like the impact, the work you've had, how has you know how have your your books been received in general by academics and the establishment? They usually tend to attack things that question the narrative. So, um, what's been the response from from what you know? Uh, some are are de- absolutely elated by this, but they but some had been teaching this when it was only a pamphlet, had been teaching it, at, for example, at City Colleges of Chicago. And a teacher's assistant was doing this at the University of Chicago. But I must say, at no time have the Catholic University of Chicago begun teaching the truth. Uh, meanwhile, all 100% of Irish academia, I do not know of a single exception, are on the side of the potato famine lie and that the British government didn't do enough. Now, to say that the British government didn't do enough is a lot like saying Hitler failed to deliver enough gas masks into Auschwitz if Zyklon B were, in fact, a, a, a poison. So, But to blame the British for not doing enough when they had 67 regiments in Ireland removing Ireland's food, 
suggests that maybe they should have had 77 regiments in Ireland <laughs> removing Ireland's food. So the lie is, is, is so obviously bad, but they control the media. They have the media with them. Yeah, that that's, you know, that that thing that they didn't do enough is just silly. It's like that's coming from the perspective of someone who is completely blind to what actually happened, which is what they were very efficient and their plan was to... Um, was to do what they did and they 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 got away with it and you know as well the um the holocaust memorials as well um tell us about these and, and where are they um we only have my wife and i have only six up in ireland and we are shocked that the antipathy of the government and church catholic church is so in opposition to the people at the first one we put up in, we ordered in 1999, it was installed in June or July of 2000. A number of groups showed up that day because it was mentioned as in the paper as going to happen. So at the, at the consecration, inauguration of this memorial on the side of the road in Ballyglass, Ballymo, County Galway, inside, in the field inside was where the village of Lissabinia once stood, it spread over a number of fields there. People showed up uh, from different parts, uh, four different groups, to see if my wife and I would just help them do the same thing for mass graves beside their houses where they came from. Uh, one only about two miles away, uh, one in um, near Scramog, Kilglass precisely, in Kilglass, uh, County Roscommon, uh, one in Ahildotia, uh, Kilkill, Bantry County, Cork. I can't remember where the third or fourth one was. But all of those people became afraid, and except the people in in, in Kilbegnet, the people there was also a group from Kilbegnet. Uh, the people from Kilbegnet were. I was talking with them about the wording to go on theirs, when a few months later there was a full-page news report in the Connacht Champion, in which the bishop of that archdiocese, Bishop Christopher Jones was the, 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 main, the main focus. And he described, he turned, what I've been asked to do was put, help the local people put a memorial up where the, where, the, the, where the people were buried from the Holocaust outside consecrated ground. And this happened much throughout Ireland. The one we put up in Castlebury later is outside consecrated ground, outside the wall of the cemetery. In many cases, and I see this in, in local uh, publications, that the, that the people who died of starvation were, they, they wouldn't have a soul that would exist beyond their deaths. They were people without soul. They didn't count, and they were not given Christian burials. Now, at a certain stage, the death rate was so great that they just had to be buried en masse. That could account for a lot, many of those people. But they were buried outside consecrated ground. So we were putting, we were getting ready to put one up there when it was announced, uh, here's one. It, and the bishop, I, I, I made a joke of it, that this bishop guaranteed his own canonization because he performed two miracles in one, the necessary two miracles for canonization, for his own canonization in one day. He converted murdered people of all ages, baptized Catholics of all ages, into unbaptized children. And he, and without moving the bodies, the bodies that had always been outside consecrated ground were inside consecrated ground. 
how he managed that latter miracle. He got the county council to take down part of the cemetery wall and, and, and enclose a token amount of where the mass grave was. And he consecrated that. <laughs> it, it is so squalid. And he, he, he put his arms around the local women and about how their children are no longer in limbo. They're now in, along with their along with their mothers, all all those little babies in that mass grave. And I would think that once it had been established as a mass grave, it probably had been a place where unborn babies or babies who died upon birth probably were buried before if, if they were uh, died before being baptized. And it's because because unbaptized children never were allowed. But anyway, this this uh, this bishop talked about. The new church and how it, how it, uh, all those, all those babies have been brought in from the cold. He said, <laughs> and uh, he retired soon thereafter. And my wife and I, just two years ago, got a memorial up in there also that names the two regiments that caused the deaths of those people. So finally, the truth was told. But it took from 19, from the year 2000 until until 2017 or so, before the wishes of the local people could be fulfilled. Wow, that's incredible stuff. Not only was it a crime, there was that massive cover-up job with many parties involved and as well with the Irish government as well. I think you mentioned on the website about how, um, you know, they kind of, as we talked about, they like to hide certain parts of history and all this stuff and they've been kind of trying to attack any sort of Irishness. They're even going after the 1916 celebrations now, the anniversary of that, you know, saying it's it's not right to celebrate that. So they just never stop. And when it comes to the, the famine itself, um, is it true that they kind of tone down the, the anniversary of the famine? They don't really acknowledge it anymore? Uh, November the 3rd, for people who respect the truth and respect the memories of the murdered millions, have masses said, or they get together and they commemorate uh, on November 3rd every year. That's been going on for about maybe 15 years now. And it's spreading. Uh, We had, uh, we we knew of well over a hundred churches, some in Ireland, many in the States, many in England, some in Australia, one in Mexico that I know of, to commemorate the murdered millions of the Irish Holocaust. So that's growing. But meanwhile, the Irish government has gotten behind a Dublin bus driver by the name of Blanche, B-L-A-N-C-H, who started calling for another date to commemorate the potato famine victims. So the the Irish government is now behind that. And they're promoting, well, it shifts. In about the last three years, they've promoted three different, uh, there were two dates in one year. It was in May, one year in April. Then the following year, it was back in May again. I haven't heard this year that they're doing anything. But they've been promoting another date in competition with the November 3rd date. And the November 3rd actually goes back to the day November 3rd, 1845, when a delegation of Irishmen, including the mayor of Dublin and Daniel O'Connell, went to the office in Phoenix Park of the, the, of the vice regent, Lord Hatesbury, and pleaded with him to stop the food removal that the people were beginning to starve to death. That was on November 3rd, 1845. He ignored their request and read to them from a paper about potatoes and their failure. 
which he poo-pooed, by the way. He said that was that that, that was all exaggerated. The failure of the potatoes was exact. But he, what he did was this. November 3rd is commemorated for two reasons as a consequence of Lord Hatesbury. It dates the beginning of the official acknowledgement of the Irish Holocaust. And it also is a beginning of the big lie campaign of famine. He started it. And, 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 and up until today, his lie has been a more successful event than the reason why the 22 men went there in the first place, to get them to stop removing the food. And also, by the way, to stop distilling, which was ta- was which was using the grains, the 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 oats and the barley that would have saved uh, thousands more, but none of that was done, and so the it went ahead, and so November third commemorates the beginning date of the Irish Holocaust. Looking looking at the impact that it had, obviously it kind of did things like um, it helped the British to feed maybe their own people and to fund the the British Empire war machine. Of course, you know, um, uh, marching around the planet doing its thing, kind of thing. And but looking at the effects that it had on Ireland, it obviously. Um, we talked about the traumatic effects going forward in the generations, but it also would have triggered off things like. Um, uh, well, it would have reduced the population as sort of a call, I suppose, and allowed them to stay in control of the country more, but also it kind of forced people to disperse, it, didn't it? It kind of created the, the Irish um, diaspora. It, it did indeed. And only the lucky ones got away. In fact, it would be a very small number total who got away successfully. Um, they would have to have some cash to be able to pay their fare. The landlords, in fact, to get rid of the people on their estates, did subsidize many, but they put them into vessels that were unseaworthy and didn't have enough food and things like that. So they landed, and then the American government blocked the the arrival of those ships, and they landed in Canada where they couldn't be stopped, Canada being part of of Britain. They couldn't be stopped. So they went up there in in lines and lines of ships up the St. Lawrence River, and they died in their hundreds of thousands in fever sheds along the St. Lawrence River, in all the towns there, Quebec, uh, uh, Toronto. There's a, a, a cathedral in Toronto you know, on which there's a mass, a mass grave was beside it. It was set up uh, as the people arrived. The, the cathedral was built prior to 1845. And for a, a huge area around it is a mass grave. And I must say, it's, it's very, very sad that they, it was a tent place. It was a place of tents. The people were treated in tents, uh, and they were buried in trenches beside the tents. It's all—it's almost unbearable to think about. The only—the only way to live in the in the knowledge of the Irish Holocaust is a, is sort of a permanent grief. Uh, there's no other way, I think, to live a true and honest life. And it's not entirely grief for the for the way for the fact that they were murdered but also that they were first murdered and then slandered ever since, and, and that the slander continues. So the only response to that is, is, a, is a deep grief. The, what gives some relief to my wife and me is the installation of such memorials. I'd like to say, respond, mention, however, that we put up one here more recently, a couple of years ago, in Smarmore, R.D., County Louth, only a hundred yards or so away from the County Neath border, southwest of RD. 
And uh, Joe Duffy of RTE Radio 1 interviewed me about it. And he was so upset about it uh, that he referred to me as Trump. So, (laughs) and and then he he had a... (laughs) Why did he do that? I don't know. I, I don't know his motive. Well, he was very, very angry at me, and he tried, he had one woman on the sh- come on the show call in to say, and it, it was a it was a, a prearranged thing. The people who called in were were already prompted. So a woman called in to blame that memorial that we installed in I suppose 2017 for the murders that were perpetrated between 1968 and 19. 19- 98 in the six counties. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I don't know how she managed to do that, but he he certainly encouraged her. And then uh, a man who, from whom I was awaiting a figure for a, a, a well-carved memorial over the next mass grave, he told me that if I were to pay him a thousand euro more than what I'm paying for the ones we're now installing— that he could do one that would properly show the proper reverence for the people buried in those mass graves. Uh, while I was awaiting his price from him, which was a, which you, which would be a, a thousand, I had agreed to pay him a thousand pounds more, thousand euro more than what we were paying for for our ongoing one. But he was going to give me another, I guess, slightly higher figure. Yet, while we were waiting, while we were waiting for his price to come in, uh, he was on that radio show. And he he referred to me as a con man, even though I was awaiting his price for a memorial. He called himself a sculptor, a sculptor who could provide a much improved memorial for the victims in the mass graves than the memorials that my wife and I are installing. So that was him. And then there was another one who was one of the officers of the County Louth Historical and Genealogical Society, who expressed his official doubt that there are any Holocaust victims in the mass grave over which my my wife and I installed the memorial, despite the fact that the people from RD have ever since then and continuing to this day occasionally gone on pilgrimages to that mass grave because it is a mass grave of people who had died in in the workhouse in RD. And a man who was, who was taken to it by his in-laws from R.D. many years. I mean, whenever he would go to R.D., his in-laws would take him there as one of their days out. They would go there and just consider and say a prayer for those in that mass grave. He's, 90, he's in his 99th year, and he plays the Bohron in an Irish traditional musical group. And we'll see him tonight in, in, a, in a tavern on the far south side of Chicago, Malakitawi. He's married to one of the Moonies from Bridge Street, R.D., and was and with them for decades, he would go to the Holocaust mass grave in Smarmore, R.D., County Louth, where my wife and I installed the memorial. All the memorials we we install name the perpetrating regiments. Now we haven't installed any yet in the in the in Antrim or Donegal, wherever a combination of landlord control and militia and Protestant population was enough to keep the Irish really down. Where the Irish were really kept down most severely, the army would not be necessary. So the army were not necessary much along the northern coast of Ireland to remove the food. 
they were they could that could be done by local forces without the British without the British Army involvement. I see, and and it, I'm glad you brought up the Joe Duffy thing because it's as always with these things when you try to tell the truth what happens is they immediately have some sort of a countermeasure so in your case they're trying to say that oh the memorial you you set up you know it's your fault all the bombings they're trying to conflate any sort of Irish national pride with you're, you're a full yes. on you know you're ready to start putting bombs in pubs they need to yes. immediately piss on what you're doing straight away so people will listen to the show and go oh he's a bit of a con man and he's probably a terrorist and all this stuff and and it just takes the edge off your message that's the point evidently you would wonder why i think that joe duffy and his cohorts make ireland unique on earth so far as i know ireland is the only nation whose establishment including its government deny a genocide of their own people perpetrated by a foreign power yeah, they, they they must be really, you know, because of their reaction to to your work, they must be really keen to keep this under wraps. Maybe it's because they know that they've done quite a good job at destroying Irish national pride and, you know, making people not proud of their country. They're doing a really good job of that here. And anything, if the truth about, you know, the so-called famine came out, and and that would I think that would reinvigorate the energy, the, the passionate energy Irish people have. I think they're probably afraid of that. Yes, I think so. And by the way, uh, it shouldn't be any surprise. I'm still shocked, but I, I really should not be too shocked at the Irish government's betrayal of its own people. Because when the Irish, after a bloodily suppressed campaign to be allowed to vote in their own, the land of their ancestors in the six counties, they conducted a campaign from 1968 until 1972 or three, I think it was three, that had been bloodily suppressed by British forces, not the loyalists, but also uniformed forces. When the Irish in the six counties were first allowed to vote, whether they were property owners or not, property owners always were allowed to vote, but nobody but property owners. The British government responded by, by trying to get all employers to not hire Catholics, therefore Irish, in order to starve them out and therefore off the voter registration rolls of the six counties. When we learned this in the States, uh, we backed the McBride principles for fair employment in Northern Ireland. They were modeled on the Sullivan principles for South Africa, which helped to take down the oppression that was going on there for so many centuries. So once we heard, once we learned that, we thought we will at least force the United, the American companies there to not participate in that. And so at the time, 25 U.S. corporations employed 11% of the working population of the six counties. Uh, the McBride Principles campaign required them to maintain American standards of fair employment practices and to not participate in that policy of job denial to the Catholics. Uh, but across the United States, my wife and I led the Illinois campaign, and we were shocked. In fact, uh, uh, the really the true leader of it was State Representative John McNamara. Uh, he 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 led it and he attended our 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 organizing meetings for it. Was there from the very beginning. We followed his political advice. He referred to this as betrayal from the most unexpected quarter of all. And what he was referring to was that along with the British Consul General in the Illinois Legislature in Springfield, Illinois would be standing the Irish Consul General. 
uh, there would be hundred, many, many hundreds, maybe maybe more than a thousand uh, Irish Americans in Springfield for that day to try to bring this thing through to enactment. But the Irish government, the Irish government's po- spokesperson was there alongside the the British one in opposition to employment for the Catholics in Northern Ireland. So that's, and then we saw the same thing. When we asked, what, should we do anything about the Birmingham Six, Guildford Four, Irish Council, oh, no, no, terrorism, terrorism, oh, no, 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 no. So the, the Birmingham Six remained in prison largely because of the Irish government for 16 years for a crime they had nothing whatever to do with. So that's the Irish government, so-called Irish government. So I, I have developed a fondness for the Irish Republican Brotherhood. There are a group of people in Ireland led by Billy Maguire, uh, Christine Delaney, John Robinson, who are uh, drawing attention that the there was a government of Ireland that was founded after the 1918 elections. Uh, it was founded on the 21st of January, 1919. As soon as the count was completed, the, the winners of the election became the government of Ireland. The British government responded by calling the, the Dáilearn an illegal assembly. Many of them were in prison already and others were locked up during, during that time. But the British government, with the help of traitors in Ireland, oppressed, put down that government and installed another government. I call it, recently I've learned to call it the Royal Doyle mm-hmm. because they have been on the British side against Ireland all of my aware life, the, year, the years in which, in which I became more aware, the Irish government have been on the British side on all Irish-British issues. They're more assiduous in locking up Irish patriots even than the British are today. Wow. There are more Irish Republicans in Port Leash than there are today in Magabry. These are, these are shocking facts. Mm. So, so Ireland is not free. The, the current government of Ireland, I'm very sorry to say this, but the current government of Ireland is the successor to the one that was imposed on Ireland, along with some Irish traders, on December the 6th, 1921. The current, again, I'll repeat that, the current government of Ireland is a successor to the one imposed on Ireland and established on December the 6th, 1921, after they had suppressed the, the one that the Irish people had created for themselves. Wow, was that, was that just after the Anglo-Irish Treaty? Yes, and, and so it was a combination of press and, and the, the church played. And I, I'm a devout Catholic. I was raised Catholic. I, I respect it. But the, the institution sided with Britain then. It sides with Britain today. It sided with Britain during the Holocaust. It sided with Britain ever since the arrival of Britain into Ireland. Wow, this is, yeah, no, I've been saying this for years as well, Chris. I mean, even on, even officially, I mean, this isn't hidden knowledge that we had a British monarch till, I think, 1949 or whatever. Um, you know, the Anglo-Irish Treaty became a, we kept, became a free um, dominion of the Commonwealth. 
1922 after the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And, and I've always said this, that when a place is controlled that long from the outside and the culture has been destroyed, the language has been eradicated and all that stuff, they don't need to have the army on the streets anymore. You know what I mean? They, they use they use academics and they use the West Brits or, or other people here who, who don't feel anything for Ireland and they, they just hold the camp just like back in the Holocaust times, there was different levels of control. They don't need to come in all out with the guns. They can do it now with academics and government and all that stuff. Yeah, it's also important to know that when Ireland, through the British government's own actions, on, uh, removed uh, Ireland's English landlords, the owners of the land, they, they were moved out and the land was striped into typically 28-acre holdings or larger on the East Coast, in the eastern section, Leinster, and the English landlords left. But the commercial, but their cousins, the commercial English, remained in Ireland. And they maintained control of Ireland. And RTE remains in their control with the assistance of Irish traders to this day. They kept the banks, the insurance companies, the auction houses, the brokerage companies, the flour mills, all of those remained in English hands after the landlords were bought out. And, and I must say something else also. My father and all of our neighbors in County Roscommon uh, and throughout Ireland, obviously, were still paying off, amortizing the huge amount given to the English landlords to get them to leave between 1900 and 1920. Twice a year, every farmer in Ireland paid rates. Rates were to maintain the schools and the roads and everything else. But they also paid an annual rent. And the rent was the amount needed to amortize the gifts that were given to those landlords in 1900-1920. And they, they were continuing to pay that off into the 1970s. And in fact, rural Ireland, in fact, all of Ireland, only became, only started to prosper after that annual extortion ended in the 1970s. Let me just make sure, just make sure I understand you here, Chris. You're saying that the, the British, was it the British government, um, kind of someone bought back the land off someone else kind of thing? The British government bought out all of its English landlords in Ireland, all of them. Oh, so then, so it's kind of almost a bit communistic, like they, they're taking away the private property and all that stuff and they're, they're holding it for themselves. No, no, they didn't hold it themselves. They, they striped it into typically 28-acre farms, built ditches, built houses. My mother's uh, aunt's husband built the house we lived in outside Castlery and County Common. Contracts were given to Irish builders and they built houses. They, and, and so these became, uh, in our area, it was the congested districts board that did this under the British system. See, the British government had become so... Uh, anathematized throughout the civilized world for what it was doing in Ireland, that it had to make a change. So it got its English, and the English landlords were starting to get shot by the Irish people. The, the, the Irish, by the way, none of this could have happened had the Irish been allowed to keep arms, but they were all disarmed, of course, way back, and they were never allowed to have arms, and they were kept too poor to ever acquire anything. Uh, all of their, the land, a, a landlord would have, an English landlord would have typically 20 or 30,000 acres. So maybe 10 square miles in an area. He had the, the, he had the consumption of all the wealth produced by everyone on his land, except starvation, uh, except, except the rent for two or three acres or five acres uh, 
that the people doing the work on his thousand acre, ten thousand acres, twenty thousand acre estate were it was were allowed to use as payment for their year's work. They typically work two hundred and sixty days a year on the landlord's land, and the payment for that the payment for that was the use of a few acres for their own purposes. So the landlord got to keep everything produced on that miles and miles of, of area. And, they, and one, one estate abutted the next English estate, the, the estate of, the, of, of uh, Wills uh, Sanford in Castlereagh abutted, okay, must have come close to that of the, of the Pakenham-Mahan estate in Strokestown. And, but there's an, another element. People who say today, in fact, Derek Warfield of the Wolf Tones, I had to correct him at the Irish American Heritage Center two years ago when he, he said, all those landlords in Ireland were Irish. They were not English. Well, they weren't. They were, they were, they were indeed English and they were all repatriated and they, they're, no, they're no longer remain in Ireland. They were bought out. And when they were bought out, they left, they departed. And so did their big networks of supporters, their lawyers, their doctors, their saddle makers, their carriage makers, all, they all left also. So that the Methodist churches and the Presbyterian churches throughout the Republic are no longer occupied any more than the, the, the Anglican church the, the so-called Church of Ireland. There's a Church of Ireland in every town in Ireland. They were the landlords' churches. They were they were paid for by the and the Irish Catholics were allowed were forced to to pay to tithe to them to give ten percent of their production whatever the landlord didn't keep to maintain the landlord's church it was applied only on tillage tillage was the was the agricultural work of the entire Irish people it was not the the tithing was was not required of of pasture land. And that was a favored one of the landlords themselves. So the landlords themselves had the Irish Catholics uh, paying for the support of his church. So the genocide, they, so the, these, these, these churches of Ireland, they put a misnomer, were a place where the genocidists would get together and pray on Sunday. And, and those churches and the, and the people running them were supported exclusively by the Irish Catholics. God. When you look more into it, it just becomes more and more of a, just a big mess. <laughs> like, uh, it's it's great. Um, but no, I love the detail though. But you know, the last thing as well, it's a real shame the world doesn't know about this and those other groups are allowed to have, you know, um, a victim or kind of Holocaust status on a massive scale. And obviously you had, you know, the Jews in World War Two, and you brought up the point as well in your work that the Germans were forced to pay like something like $100 billion in Holocaust survivor payments. It's much more than that and that was years ago it's, it's much higher than that now wow and the the irish but the irish never received such money from britain i, th- I think that we got an apology from uh, a fake apology from uh, david cameron or tony blair at one stage you know that was it well that yes that so-called apology was to do nothing other than to conceal a genocide because he he apologized for britain not having done enough that's a different matter altogether yeah because that that implies that what it was doing was bene- was benevolent little snakes <laughs> never ends just another layered deception yes and and but he has plenty of he has plenty of irish uh, parrots uh, echoing his words and all of ireland all of ireland's academia are now doing that and 
But I'm just hoping that the spread of the book. Oh, let me say that the book is available. My book, the Irish Cola Cost, sorry, 18, Ireland 1845-1850, the Irish Cola Cost and Who Kept It, quote, perfect, unquote, is available in Ireland from John Robinson and Don, Don Leary. Uh, I donated to the Irish Republican Brotherhood the right to print a number of printings. This is the third printing they have. And I think there's some books still uh, on the third printing. And uh, and if, if you happen to know another group or if, you're, if your listeners happen to know, to know of another definitely worthwhile uh, meritorious group, I'd be happy to donate a printing or the right to them to print uh, a, a batch. Um, it's important that enough people read. It's, it's doing well. Um, what else? But John Robinson in Dublin, John, it can be acquired from him at John Robinson Imports at earcom.com. John Robinson, you can, you can buy a copy from him. Okay. In the States, they're on amazon.com. And I must say it has had some very fine reviews of people, one from Harvard, uh, McSheamon himself from Cornell University. I'm delighted at the quality of the support it's getting. And I'm not surprised at the opposition to it. And in fact, they say one we can we can measure our value by the quality of our enemies. And I think this is happening. I don't want to build myself up too high, but my enemies are doing that for are doing that for me by attacking me. Just like the the FBI criminals who tried to frame me for all of those crimes. Uh, it's an honor in a way if it weren't so damned expensive and dangerous. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's an indirect compliment. The minute you do anything that's worth value, they just flocked like flies around shite, excuse the, the comparison. They just appear out of nowhere. The minute, you know, in Ireland, you're allowed to be a lot of things or a victim of a lot of things and oppressed in lots of ways, but not for being Irish. That's not allowed. That's shocking. Uh, and uh, when the Irish opened their doors to foreigners, I thought that's nice. That that sort of celebrates their own oppressed and and dispersed status at one stage. But a nation often fails from a surfeit of its main virtue, and I think that it has gone way beyond what is reasonable in terms of allowing foreigners to enter and remain. Uh, I, I think there, there wasn't much left of Ireland anyways. The language is gone. The main, the main thing is gone. And to bring in this many foreigners, uh, I, I, again, I applauded it when, it, when, they were first, when it first happened. But an excess of a virtue can sometimes be even fatal. And that might be the situation for the Irish today. Yeah, it's a shame, Chris. People don't learn as well, and and Ireland has been constantly under this uh, this pressure, and it seems seems like we're never just allowed to be left alone and be Irish, you know. And um, but yeah, it's a it's a big uh, a big uh, ongoing issue, I suppose, is freedom in this country and sovereignty. Um, we you know it's been great talking to you, Chris. I've learned some new stuff, and um, it's been you know really enjoyed it as well. And I'll make sure you know we can sort out links as well to where to get the book and all that contact information as well for the for uh, Robinson you mentioned as well, and uh, just try to get it out there and and um, get some people to get their hands on the book. You give me hope for not alone Ireland but for the world. People like you, if if the planet is going to be saved, it's going to take people like you. And so I, I have to tip I have to really salute you. Thanks very much, I, Chris. I, 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 I'd love to meet you someday. 
Yeah, well, maybe, yeah, we'll go and check out those um, those uh, memorials at, at together at some stage. And, uh, and I appreciate the compliments and I'm just doing my part. You know, there's plenty of Irish people here. There's plenty of brainwashed people here, pl- plenty of sick people, but there's plenty of um, ones who are proud of Ireland as well and just, just want uh, want a bit of freedom, a bit of autonomy after everything that's happened here, you know. Um, so we're all just doing our part. That's how I see it. By the way, it used to be the problem used to be England. Uh, it's not so much England anymore. It's now it remains England, but only to the extent that England itself is co-opted by the dual citizen neocons and and, and or the neoliberals. They're they're all amalgamated today, and they're planning the conquest of planet Earth and space. Ireland, the Irish government is completely taken, not alone by the British, but also. By the by, the international neocons, the, these dual citizen people, and um, and I hope that the that what you're doing will have its effect, and that the Irish public and brotherhood and other others will educate the Irish people about their true origins, so they can cast off this control by foreigners, and and become them become themselves. That's a good point to finish off on, Chris. You know, um, uh, definitely, and uh, you know, we just have to do our best and uh, try to hang on to what we have and try to reawaken the Irish identity and all that. But anyway, um, Chris Fogarty, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Resolving Reality Radio. That was author Chris Fogarty and Chris's book. Ireland 1845 to 1850, The Perfect Holocaust and Who Kept It Perfect, is available via the information in the description. Subscribe to us on YouTube and visit our website resolvingreality.com. We'll be back soon with another episode of Resolving Reality Radio. Until then, take care and enjoy Resolving Reality. You are listening to Resolving Reality Radio, the podcast for Ireland's new independent media website, resolvingreality.com.